two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Low Orbits, the podcast mini-sode in which two writers watch some TV. Welcome to another edition of Low Orbits. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. We're going to be looking at the wonderful, enjoyable episode of Star Trek, The Gamesters of Triskelion. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Triskelion? Triskelion? I don't think anyone pronounces it correctly. Probably not, because it doesn't exist. You see, it's Triskelion because it's in a system with three suns. Ouch. That's okay. So anyway, uh, so this is, um, I'm going to say right up front, and I hope that we don't wander too far off into uh, inappropriate territories, but it's going to be very hard to do for this particular episode because, quite frankly, this is the one Star Trek episode, original series, that I could think of that most lends itself to snarky comments. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree that, that there's some content in this episode that is just begging for snarkiness? Well, yes, it's, I guess, infamous. So for those of you who may not remember, this is the episode where Kirk, Chekhov, and Uhura are whisked away to a planet controlled by superintelligent beings who enslave people for their amusement and force them to fight each other. And it features the very memorable Angelique Pettijan in her tinfoil outfit that barely covers up the necessary bits that need to be covered up. I remember reading an account of that costume. And, well, let's just say they had the idea of having no support whatsoever on the costume except for the weight of it going over her shoulders. And they were lucky in finding Angelique Pettijohn because she had a level of natural support, which was required by the costume, that not a lot of actresses had. Now, I remember reading David Gerald's behind-the-scenes Star Trek book. I can't remember the title of it. And I remember the discussion with the costume designer of Star Trek, who, because they so often put women in skimpy, revealing costumes on that show, that the costume designer only liked actresses who were kind of flat-chested. Oh. That made his job very easy to drape these women in minimal amounts of fabric. But if the woman was like Angelique Pettijohn was, fairly well endowed, that presented an engineering problem for him. So for those of you who are not familiar with Angelique Pettijohn, I've always had, and I think Steve joins me in this, had somewhat of an interest in her because she had a very interesting career. She was on many classic 1960s TV shows, usually playing a sexy blonde who was not the brightest bulb in the basket. She was in an Elvis Presley movie. Really? Playing a ditzy blonde who's not the brightest bulb in the basket. She was probably best known in the TV era for being Agent 69, I think it was, who was a master of disguise. Wasn't that... She was like a male agent who could disguise themselves as a sexy blonde. Are you sure about that part? Yes. I don't know if it was Agent 69 or not, but she was in Get Smart. Ah, okay. As a master of disguise, male agent disguised as a sexy blonde. That makes sense for Get Smart. Now, she was also in a number of exploitation movies in the 1970s, foremost of which 
for me, is GI Executioner from, I believe, 1973. It's sort of a cheap, low-budget spy movie where she has this infamous scene where she's firing a machine gun while she's completely naked. It is one of the great moments in B-movie exploitation ever because it's a spectacular scene. I'm surprised you've never mentioned that title to me. What was it again? GI Executioner. And then, of course, infamously, in the 1980s, she did three hardcore pornography movies when she was fairly well past her prime. Yeah. So anyway, not to linger on Miss Tinfoil 1968, but there were many reactions I had to this episode, one of which is it's the most Shatnerific of all the Star Trek episodes, I think, unless we come across one in the future. But this one is super Shatnerific. Since it's been so many years since I've seen these episodes. And, and we did just rewatch it. Yes. To last night. So I'm not entirely familiar with the whole series anymore. I had heard that some people considered the episode to be a bad one. I always had kind of a neutral memory of it. I would disagree. Like I said at the beginning, this is an episode that is inviting snarkiness from the very first moments of the episode. So I could see where people would have that sort of a reaction to it. But if you are a fan of Star Trek for its fun moments, which I think is a good way to look at the original series, it's fun. It's a fun episode. You did change my opinion on this show when you explained what you meant by Shatnerific, going from neutral to agreeing with you that from that perspective, it's a great episode. And you had a good argument for it. If you are a fan of Bill Shatner's unique acting style, and the character of Captain Kirk, this is a great episode. Let's go down the list. So we have the contractually obligated Shatner fight scenes, several of them. I think we have like, what, three or four? A lot of them. In this one, where he gets to do his acrobatic stuff, like the double kick flying through the air. And he comes up with a new one in this one where he gets to pole vault and kick people while he's pole vaulting. So it's full of, you know, if you love the Shatner fight scenes, this is probably the best one of all the series. And he spends half the episode with his shirt off. Of course. Which is very Shatnerific. He seduces Angelique Pettyjohn in order to trick her into stealing her key, which is very Shatner-esque. You know, he makes her fall in love with him by talking about the beauty of the stars. What is beautiful? And that he lives out among the stars and he's holding her and pointing up to the sky and her eyes get wide and moist as she's thinking of the beautiful romantic image that he's painting. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, he knocks her out and steals her key. Couldn't he have asked for it at that time instead of hitting her? Yeah, but, you know, it was the 1960s, so if it was really important, you could go ahead and knock out a woman. Yeah, if she was, you know, hysterical. What? (laughs) If she was in the way. Yes. And then, let's see, the final Shatnerific, the number of reaction shots, they put these collars around their necks that they would give them a shock if they misbehaved. So there were many close-up shots of Shatner overreacting let's say that frozen pain face yes so there is that and then of course the final shatner-esque touch is he basically teaches the highly advanced intelligent aliens how to be good people and you know stop enslaving people and help them develop a new society and isn't that what star trek was all about traveling from star to star solving crimes and bringing people together yes Which is very admirable, and I think that's one of the things to admire about Star Trek. But 
Unfortunately, and this is a great example, there were way too many episodes where the reforming, civilizing impulse of the Federation was personified in the person of James T. Kirk, who would, with the force of his rhetoric, would turn the bad guys into good guys. So from that standpoint, I think this is a terrific episode. So any other additional thoughts on this episode that you liked or that you didn't like? or I think it's one of those episodes when you look at it more closely, you start to notice some unusual things. Things that had to happen for the plot to happen. Yeah. Like, when has Kirk ever beamed down to a planet with Chekhov and Ohura before? It's an odd choice. Where were they going? I forget why they were beaming down to the planet that they were beaming down to, but then they got interrupted and whisked away to another planet 24 light years away or whatever it was. That went by a little fast. Did they have at least some vague excuse? Yeah, I mean, check off. You're going down with the captain and ensign and the communications officer. That That's a weird away team. And obviously it's because they needed the rest of the command crew on the ship to rescue him. You said that things happen because they need to happen? Yes. The reason in this case was, of course, Shatner's going to go down there. So one of the plot elements here is that each of the people are paired up with a member of the opposite sex. And the expectation is, I guess, that they'll breed or something. Uh, you know, It's a sexy, if not slightly rapey scene. This is a very sex-drenched episode. And yes, it is rapey because in Uhura's case, but before I get to that, they have to have the hunk of all time, James T. Kirk. Of course, he's going to hook up with the most beautiful woman down there. What is love? Which is required. I think, again, contractually obligated, I think, for him. I wouldn't be surprised if that was a literal truth. Yes. But then you've also got to have a female crew member to have a male-female dynamic. And then, of course, who else is necessary for this kind of a situation? But the specially recruited teen heartthrob, Chekhov. So those of you who don't know, the reason that they added the character of Chekhov to the show was they were competing against the monkeys, and they wanted someone who would appeal to teenage girls. And uh, he was brought in simply for that purpose. And would explain why he's the only crew member with that haircut. Yeah, that was actually a wig, apparently. When they first came in, he had pretty short hair, and they had to wait till he grew his hair out. So they put this monkey wig on him, or beetle wig, or whatever, and it, it looked really funny. So anyway, so that's why you had that away team composition. It had nothing to do with any mission. They had to do everything with, with sex. And yes, there was kind of a rapey scene involving Uhura and her male pairing. And then we've already talked about the blonde that Kirk seduced. And then the third romantic encounter was the orange-skinned alien woman with a man's voice, who was a bit chubby, came on very strongly to check off. And he was very uncomfortable with the whole thing. So I'm not going to have any additional comment on that scene because that scene has, it's fraught with danger. <laughs> yes, a controversy. <laughs> yes. So yeah, there was that. What other little details did you notice in this one? Well, not to be pedantic or anything, but in the final fight, they lay out the rules and Kirk immediately breaks half of them. There was the yellow part and the blue part. And Kirk had to stay on the yellow part. If he stepped off the yellow part, he would instantly be killed. And then the other people had to stay on the blue parts. And of course, like within five seconds, he's stepped off the yellow part. Nothing happens. Yeah, no one noticed because I'm sure the 
maybe it was like take number three and the director said, oh, fine, no one's going to care. <laughs> Plus that's when he was doing all of his pole vaulting too. Oh yes, because he pole vaulted from one yellow area to another. Right. So that was a good reason. I would, I would love to see the bloopers from that show where he missed his pole vault badly. So now that you're mentioning little details, one of the things that has bothered me throughout all of this series was repeated here where there's no real consistency about the capabilities of warp speed in this show. There are episodes where they effortlessly go to warp 10, and it's not a problem at all. There are other episodes where it's like, oh my God, if we go past warp six, I don't think the ship can handle it. And that happens in this one where at one point Scotty says, we're at warp six, and I'm afraid to try to push it any farther than that. Yeah, but then, like two minutes later, he says, oh, I can do seven and a half. Yeah. (laughs) He's holding back. There's no consistency whatsoever in terms of the warp speed in the whole show as a whole. And in this episode in particular, it's all over the place. We had a little scientific discussion. At one point, Spock goes, this planet is 24 light years away. And I thought, okay, well, if you're going warp 10, which is 10 times the speed of light, that means it would still take you two years to get there, right? Yeah. But then you said it's what? See, I thought that the warp speed was a logarithmic scale. So warp 8 is 10 times faster than warp 7. Oh, that's kind of like the Richter scale. Yeah. Which is logarithmic, like you said. Yeah. So warp 10 would be like super fast. 24 light years in half an hour yeah. or something like that. Of course. Which sounds very dubious to me. That's one of the major problems in Star Trek is... You know, they're out by Jupiter, and you need them to take an hour to get back to Earth. Well, then you need them to take an hour to get to Alpha Centauri later on. Right. Well, this brought up a writing thing in my head, that if you wanted Star Trek to be really super well done, you would have solved all these problems in the series Bible before anything was written. Right. But I don't think they ever had a series Bible for the original series. Right. Because there's so many scientific inconsistencies throughout the show. And I'm sure we'll find more as we go here. However, you got to think about this realistically. If you knew Star Trek was going to be Star Trek, then yeah, you spend a month writing the series Bible and you call up physicists and things like that. But let's just say you're writing the Andy Griffith show Salvage One, where a man who owns a junkyard builds a spaceship. Would you spend a month writing the show Bible or saying, yeah, it doesn't matter. It just, who cares? Yeah. And this was originally pitched to the networks as Wagon Train to the Stars because Roddenberry had been a producer on the TV show Wagon Train. And for those of you who weren't old enough to have seen that show or haven't seen it on various cable channels or whatever, it's a wagon train that every week stops at a new place and meets new characters and has an interesting situation that they have to resolve by the end of the show. So that was one of the formats of TV back in the day, was that the character or characters who traveled from place to place... Bringing people together? Yeah, that would give you an excuse to meet new characters and bring in new actors as guest stars and have different kinds of storylines. So that's what Roddenberry was pitching, was he was pitching that type of show to the networks. And I don't think that the development went much further than that. They came up with six basic technologies that they needed for the show to work. Yeah. The transporter being primary among them, where it allowed you to get back and forth without having to have a lot of special effects. And time, just having to waste time on a shuttlecraft. Right. The phasers, the communicators, the warp drive, and the 
what was the thing they used for a scanner? The uh, the medical scanner? Stuff? Yeah, they had the medical scanner, and then they had the uh, other one. The oh, tricorder. Tricorder, the tricorder, because it's three things in one, I guess. I don't know. So they had these basic technologies that made the storytelling possible. And I don't think they devoted much thought beyond that. Occasionally, you might get a science fiction writer write a script for the show, and they might have written some stuff or added some stuff that enhanced that a little bit, gave it a little bit more of a background or a backstory. I think some of the twists that outside writers put on these devices became problems later on, especially the transporter. Yeah. And another thing to keep in mind, too, is that a lot of these shows were shot out of sequence. So a show that was week three was actually shot before the TV show that was shown the week before. So they were out of order of being shot. You know, that alone gave you potential for continuity errors by having the episodes air out of order. I think that contributed to it as well. One last thought for me is that quote, Wagon Train to the Stars. I never watch Wagon Train. It's a good show. So for decades, I just took that quote as meaning, oh, a Western in space. I didn't realize until you brought it up that he was quoting the structure of going to other places every week and having different adventures. Right, exactly. All right, well, that's it for another Low Orbits. And please follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really would help us. It really would. And like this episode if you enjoyed it. Tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the stars. <laughs>